Well, we're beginning a brand new sermon series today called Returning Home, and it's been mentioned before, but we're going to be looking at, over the course of the summer, two books of the Bible written in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what's amazing about these books, even though they're written 2,400 years ago to a culture, to a people that is so vastly different from our culture and people today, there is an incredible amount of similarities that we can learn from, that we can grow from by looking at the people of Israel. First of all, the people of Israel in 587 B.C. experienced a great dispersal, great disruption to their community together. This time it was the Babylonian army or the Assyrian army under Nebuchadnezzar came in, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and took several thousand of the citizens away uh, 900 miles to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. It took a four-month's journey for them to get there. They were torn apart, ripped apart from their families, from their communities that they grew up in, and they found themselves in a strange city with none of the familiar people that they once knew. Well, we didn't battle an army, but we certainly battled a pandemic, and the same thing happened to us. We found ourselves in isolation, away from family, away from this family that we call our church family, where we didn't get to see each other and hug each other, experience the sadnesses and the joys that we're used to as a family of faith. That's the first similarity. Second of all, uh, along with the destruction of Jerusalem was the destruction of the temple. Now, the temple for the Israelites, for the Jewish people, it was the absolute center of their religious life together. That's where the people came to experience the presence of God. He was found in the innermost part of the temple, the Holy of Holies. It's where they experienced the sacrifices to remind them, promise them, assure them of the forgiveness of sins. It's where they had the great festivals of Passover. All that was taken from them. Even those who got to stay behind in Jerusalem, they couldn't use the temple. It was utterly destroyed. Well, our building is still standing, and truth be told, if something would happen to it, we've got a really good insurance program. They'd come in here, we'd get a really good architect, probably build it back better than it was. We'd have no problems. But this last year, we did experience a disruption, a disruption of the way in which we experience the presence of God today, his body and blood, his true presence, his assurance for us for the forgiveness of sins. And the proclamation of the word the hearing of God's word. There's still people who have not yet come back. Maybe this is the first Sunday for you. Welcome back. But it was a great disruption. And then thirdly, a similarity that we see is that when the people did eventually come back, we'll read about this in the book of Nehemiah, there was great opposition to their return. There's forces outside of the community that didn't want them there for political reasons, for military reasons. They were, they were threatened by the return of the people and yet Jesus promises us today, if you read his word, Jesus says that if you love me, Jesus says, people will hate you because of that love. So opposition outside of these walls is nothing new to us. It's going to happen until Jesus returns. So I don't want to focus on that too much today. Instead, what I'm most concerned about is also what happened in Nehemiah. It was a disagreement among the community of faith that had gathered and had returned to Jerusalem not listening or not trusting in the leadership, second-guessing, doubting the decisions that were made, arguing amongst each other about opinions and decisions that were being made and what they disagreed with, what they agreed with. 
And I bring this up to us today because uh, most of us in the room today, most of us watching our line come from a, a Lutheran background. And if you're familiar with Lutheranism, you know that at our core, we're a bunch of Norwegian, Scandinavian, and German people. And if you know anything about these culture groups, we can be a little stubborn. <laughs> and so if we're not careful... If we are not basing the return on something outside of ourselves, not basing the restoration that God's calling us to on something outside of ourselves, something timeless like the word of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, then we're destined to repeat what we see happening in these books. So I'm so excited. We are so thrilled to be doing this sermon series as we kick it off today. There's going to be three themes that we see happening over and over in our time together this summer, looking through Ezra and Nehemiah. The first theme, and we'll look at this today in short, is how God provides. It's his provision. He gives people what they need in the exact moment of time, despite their circumstances. We'll look at what that means for us today. Second of all, we'll look at God's people. The people of God, really, that's at the heart of these two accounts in Scripture, was bringing people back to worship and to have the religious life, the spiritual life that they had lost, to come back together. What does that mean for us? And then lastly, and probably most importantly, we'll look at God's mission. What was he up to? What was the whole point of letting this happen in the first place? Why was he bringing people back, and what does that have to do with us today? What's our mission that God is calling us to? God's providence, God's people and God's mission. Let's open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1, beginning with God's providence. And we see it here in the very first verse, really coming from an unusual source. It says that in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Cyrus, king of Persia, he is not the king that brought the people into captivity in the first place. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus was an Assyrian, a Persian king, at this point the most powerful king in all of the land, at least that was known at that time. And God is using him. It says that the Spirit, the Spirit of God, this is the Holy Spirit, stirred up in this pagan man, the most powerful leader in history, at least up until that point, to deliver the people. Now, if you're a first century, I'm sorry, fifth century, fourth century first hearer, at this point, you're going to be pretty surprised because you're waiting for God to deliver up a Jewish king, or at least the deliverer would be some sort of an Israelite who understands the culture and understands the, the history of God's people, but no, God is going to use an unusual person in Cyrus. And then he starts showing off. Listen to this, verse 2. It says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Which, by the way, that's a slight exaggeration. Uh, you know, kings, they're always exaggerating and, you know, claiming things that aren't theirs. Nonetheless, says that he has charged me to build up, build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So not only is this pagan king, this powerful leader, going to let the people go to return to their home, he's going to finance the rebuilding of the temple. And it gets even better than that. Look at verse 8. It says, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, which, by the way, very nice reading today. Mithradath, Shashabar, very popular names in the 4th century. Nobody picked them up today. I don't know why. And you don't even know if that's how it's pronounced. As pastors, we can just make stuff up, and you don't know. It's kind of the, it's kind of the cool thing that we get here. 
It says he brought these guys uh, and he gives them 5,400 articles, bowls of silver and gold and vessels. These are the religious wares of the temple before it was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar took them all away. This is how they performed all the sacrifices, how they gave that many people the Passover meal. These are very uh, special articles of worship that somehow there was like a giant storage unit in Babylon. It had been stored there for 70 years. And Cyrus says, here you go, you can have these back too. And if that wasn't enough, there's one more incredible blessing, this, this provision that God provides. Look at verse 4. And Cyrus wrote this out. It was delivered from town to town. It says, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides the freewill offerings of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. In other words... Cyrus made it a decree that if you weren't a Jewish citizen, you had to financially give of your own wealth, your own silver, your own gold, your own animals, your own clothing, give it to the people of Israel as they made their journey back to their hometown in Jerusalem, another four-month trip, 900 miles back. God is providing over and over and over to the people what they needed in that moment despite their circumstances. But there's one more really cool thing about this. And if you've been reading our uh, daily Bible plan with us these last few months or the la past year, we've been as a congregation reading the entire Bible together. Right now, we're just about to get into Ezra, Nehemiah. Make a plug for that if you've kind of fallen off the wagon or if this is your first Sunday, this is a great time to plug in. You can, I'll show you an email address you can sign up for after service here today. But it's an awesome opportunity to get into God's word. Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the books we'll be studying together these next few months, plug in. But a few months ago, we were in the book of Exodus. And maybe this sounds familiar because we learned that when the Israelites were first in captivity, long before the temple had been built, long before Jerusalem was formed, the Israelites were in captivity in, this time, Egypt. And there was another king. His name was Pharaoh. He was, at that point in history, the most powerful king in all the land. He didn't want to let the people go, unlike Cyrus. He was reluctant. And God had to break his will. And 10 plagues came to the Egyptian people and utterly destroyed them. Finally, Pharaoh gives in. He, he reluctantly lets the people go. But one thing God did to provide for the people is this. He commanded that every Egyptian give the Israelites, as they headed out of town, articles of silver and gold and animals and clothing, the very things that they would need to make it to the promised land out of Egypt. Do you see what God is doing here in Ezra chapter 1? He's having the people look back. He's reminding them that God has always provided and he's reminding them that by looking back and remembering the provision of old, they can then look forward with confidence to the unknown certain, that unknown future that they were facing. By looking back, you see they gain confidence and trust for the future. Well, there's a really good application for us here today, and I don't know if you've ever done this before. Uh, probably something we should do on a more regular basis, but this week, what I want to invite you to do is take a moment and write out a list. Think back on your life. Where has God provided for you? Has he brought healing from an illness? Has he provided financially when you were in dire need? Where has God provided for you? Has he comforted you in a time of loss? Where has he provided? 
But write those things down, and as you do that, be encouraged as you face an uncertain future yourself. God has provided for you in the past, and he will provide for you what you need in the future despite your circumstances. It's a, it's a blessing that we get to do as, as believers. Look back. So that's God's providence, number one. Number two, let's talk about God's people. Uh, look with me at verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So now we have the, the ordinary, everyday citizens of now Babylon, but the Israelites who God also is sending his Holy Spirit. He's also encouraging them to go on this great work, this great mission to rebuild the city. But if we skip through that too quickly, we might miss a really important point here. And we, we get it in chapter 2. If you have a Bible with me, go ahead and, and flip it to chapter 2. You'll see a bunch of names and numbers. These are, you know, admittedly the, the type of chapters in the Bible we kind of skim through or just outright skip. But there's a really important detail here. It says that there were 42,360 people who returned in the very first wave from Babylon to Jerusalem. Just over 42,000 people. What's important to know, though, for us today is that only about 900 of those people were the paid professional leaders, the priests, what we call pastors today. Small majority compared to the larger amount of people who went and they were, we might borrow some language from our mission statement, they were ordinary people. They were in finance. They were managers. They were doctors, nurses, teachers, skilled laborers, farmhands, shop owners. The majority of the people who went and did this important work of restoring and rebuilding were ordinary, non-paid church professionals. And I got to bring this up because, again, if you're familiar with the Lutheran Church, we're part of a larger denomination, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Many of you have been lifelong Lutherans. You know that we have incredible uh, undergraduate colleges. They're called Concordia, Concordia University, raising up phenomenal church workers. We've got two really good seminaries that are creating just brilliant theologians. Not me, it's Pastor Nate. I mean, I... I tell a couple of jokes every once in a while. But we really do. We've got great pastors. They're so knowledgeable in Scripture to unpack those before our eyes. But there's one problem with this. I've noticed this for, for the years that I've been a part of this church body and being a part of a couple different churches. The one negative side of this is there is a downside is that because we have such great pastors and great DCEs and we've got a couple great DCEs in our congregation, we tend to, as members, rely a little bit too heavily on the pastor's and the paid church people to do the heavy lifting. And look, we've got very important roles. Pastors are, are called to do a specific thing. DCEs, they are skilled and trained to do specific things, but actually God has called you as the members of our congregation, as the connected family of our congregation to also participate in this great work of restoring and rebuilding what was lost. God needs you. And he's blessed you with gifts that we don't have. And if the people didn't respond to that call, if only the 900 priests and like the 450 Levites, those are the lay leaders of the temple, if only they went, I don't know if the work would have gotten done. The majority of the heavy lifting was done what, by what we call ordinary people doing extraordinary things by the power of the Holy Spirit God has called them to do. It's God's people. We're going to be talking a lot about that this summer. 
But then our third point, our third theme that we'll hit on a lot, none of that means anything without first understanding what it means to, uh, or what the larger mission of God was. Cyrus, uh, he thinks that he's doing some great things here. Cyrus thinks that he's sending people to rebuild a temple to create a new or a renewed religious life for the Jewish people. The people themselves, unless they were a prophet, they really thought the same thing. They thought that the mission of God was to go rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, and that was it. It was very simple for them. But what we're going to do today is also look back to understand God's mission. We also have to look back. We're not going to look back to a people. We're going to look back to a person. We're not going to look back to a temple. We're going to look back to a cross because the real mission of God The real reason God was bringing people back to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem was not just for them, it was for all mankind because the mission was Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection to free us from not a captive army, the captivity of sin and death that entangles us, that causes us anxiety, that that bonds us or bounds us in slavery. That's what Jesus came to do. That's the ultimate mission of God. It's restoration, and it's rebuilding. Here's why this is important. Let's close with this. These last several months, our staff, our pastors, our DCs, we've been praying, we've been asking for input from you, our members, and we've been crafting a vision, trying to prayerfully uh, figure out what what are we going to do this next year? What's God calling us to do? And we've landed on this. We believe that God's asking us as a congregation, not just the pastors, but, but you as well, we're going to spend the entire year on restoration and rebuilding. Taking the fragment community that's been, that's been hurt here, some of the ministry that hasn't been happening, we're going to get back slowly but surely to what God's calling us to do. It's restoration and rebuilding. I want to share with you a story why I think it's so important, and maybe you've experienced something like this before, but this last couple days, Amanda and I, my wife, and our son JJ, one of his friends, we went up to Glenwood Springs up in the mountains for a little two-day getaway, a little vacation. And as we were there, we were first time, by the way, having a vacation without the restrictions. It's so cool, no masks and no social distancing. It was like going back in time. It was awesome. But as we're there, we're having these conversations. You know, we'd meet somebody in a ride at the adventure park. We'd meet somebody at the hotel. Met a cool guy from Boulder and his son. He was there on vacation. We met this other couple. They were really cool people. But our last day, it was Friday morning. We're sitting in the hot tub. The kids are playing uh, in the pool with a basketball. And we're talking to our friend from Boulder. And this new couple came in. They sat in the hot tub. There was an older couple. They had their books. They looked at first like they just wanted to kind of have their nice little private time. And they sit down. They're reading their book. And one of the basketballs come flying from the pool and lands in the hot tub. And I thought, well, vacation's over, so you might as well. That's how it goes. But this couple, they were so cool. They put the book down, and they weren't angry. Instead, they were smiling, and the dad took the ball, and he threw it back to the kids, and we started talking with them. And we had a 20-minute conversation, and during that conversation, again, I thought, it's just small talk, and I didn't realize that God was actually doing something in that conversation. Don't even remember what we talked about, except that as the couple was leaving, the wife looked at my wife and said, it was so good to talk to you. And I grab Amanda's hand. I go, honey, you got to help me remember this. The Lord just gave me a sermon illustration. (laughs) Which pray for our wives, by the way, because they can never really vacation. This is how it works. God just zaps you with something. But here's what I realized. So important. 
You know, I think back on the last year, as Amanda and I were talking, if we did get together with anybody, we tended to get together with people who thought just like us, politically, religiously, about issues of COVID or race or all the things that we've been, we've been struggling with this past year as a society. And when we did that, when we got together with people who thought just like us, who, who were just like us, it just reinforced our own ideas of how the world should be and how we should respond and what we should do. And it was really detrimental to us as a larger society. Because here we were having just a simple, ordinary conversation with five different strangers, and it was life-giving. And the reason I bring that up, because I know that if it's true for the outside world, it is definitely true for us as a church that we need to restore what was lost. We need to rebuild And I believe that we as Christians have the absolute best way to do that. We have been given this gift that the outside world has not been given. They don't know it anyways. It has been given. They just don't believe it. Because what we're going to do in this place, well, by the way, we're going to challenge you. If you're coming to this church because you just want to have this like a cozy, comfy time, this is not the church for you. I hate to tell you, we're going to challenge you to think differently, to think spiritually We're going to challenge you, invite you to volunteer at this place. We need soundboard operators, people doing the live stream in the back. We need musicians. We need acolytes. We need to get back to a sense of of normalcy here, and we're going to challenge you to to join us in that. But we're going to challenge you also to forgive if there's a torn relationship this past year. We're going to challenge you to get into God's Word, to get back to a regular rhythm of being together in worship And the studying God's word, it's going to be challenging, yes, but here's the point. The way we're going to do that and the way it's going to happen is not by law. The law wakes us up. Instead, we're going to look back. To look back in that moment in history where Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. It's a critical moment in history. And by anchoring our hope in that moment, that then will give us the hope and the confidence that we need to face our own uncertain future. We have what we need, everything in Jesus Christ. May we be the type of people that by looking back can then with great hope face the future and restore this place to how God would have it be. Amen? Amen.